Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor, and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest and be soothed. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. Welcome to another episode. I'd like to take a moment of gratitude for Belinda Jade, who sent me a message to say, thank you for another amazing episode, number 20. I just got in the car after a long day and difficult last session and decided to have a little scroll of Facebook before driving home to the evening routine. And up pops your post about when the session is tricky. Just what I needed. Perfect timing. And your final words? Thank you. Really, really appreciate your podcasts. Thank you so much, Belinda. I always appreciate the time it takes to give feedback and I love reading all the comments from listeners. If you're ever in doubt if I'd want to hear from you, I assure you I do. It really helps me stay inspired. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, Dr. Chris Irons. Chris is a clinical psychologist, researcher, writer and trainer, specialising in compassion-focused therapy. He is co-director of Balanced Minds, a London-based organisation providing compassion-focused psychological interventions for individuals and organisations. He's also the co-director of BALO, a company focusing on bringing greater compassion and balance to all levels of organisations. Chris works with Compassionate Mind Foundation and as a visiting lecturer at University College London. For over 20 years, Chris has worked with Professor Paul Gilbert, and other colleagues on research and clinical developments linked to CFT. He was involved in some of the initial research papers and book chapters on CFT and has published many articles and book chapters on compassion, attachment, shame and self-criticism. He has authored five books, including the Compassionate Mind Workbook with Dr Elaine Beaumont and CFT from the Inside Out with Russell Colts, James Bennett Levy and Tobin Bell and the Compassionate Mind Approach for Difficult Emotions. Alongside Elaine Beaumont, he recently released the first CFT-based app called the Self-Compassion app. If you haven't already, also check out the previous episode with Dr Elaine Beaumont on Cultivating Kindness, where she also talks more about the new app. Chris regularly provides CFT teaching, training, workshops and retreats across the world. And if you ever get the opportunity to train with him, I would highly recommend it. Chris is an experienced clinician, having worked in the NHS and in independent practice for many years. He has recently been leading on the development and compassion-based approaches for the general public and in integrating these approaches in organisations. As well as being very accomplished, Chris is a really lovely human being and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome him onto the podcast. I really enjoyed chatting with Chris 
and I hope you really enjoy the episode. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure for me. I remember meeting you back in London at one of the Compassionate Mind Foundation conferences, and I've also had the privilege of actually doing training with you, um, which has been fantastic. So I'm really excited to have you on. And thank you for zooming in from Portugal in your morning. Thank you so much for having me, Hayley. It's wonderful to be here. And yeah, I've been looking forward to spending some time with you and and hopefully spending some time face to face with you in the future as well. Yes, well, I'll I'll be at the conference in October if you're going to be there. So that'll be be there. So there's a a good immediate one later on in the year to be able to hang out together. Fantastic. So it would be lovely for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So do you want to start with telling us a little bit about yourself and what it was that drew you to a career in psychology? Yeah, so um, so obviously my name is Chris. I'm a clinical psychologist and I guess a, a part-time academic. Um, and yeah, what, what sort of brought me to psychology? Well, I guess a, a number of different things, really. There's uh, a lot of family stuff, I guess. Like, I, I, I was lucky, I, I, I would say it's lucky to be raised in a family where lots of people were doing sort of caring roles one way or another. So both my parents are teachers, lots of family members were either teachers or social workers. Uh, my grandfather on my dad's side uh, was the first black magistrate in the UK and got an OBE for his work on race relations back in 1977. I think he got his OBE. Uh, So his whole career basically was fighting for equality of people from the Caribbean and from India and Pakistan who were being treated pretty poorly in the UK when they first came across after the war. So I kind of was raised hearing and seeing people helping others, really. And I remember my grandfather telling me a lot about his experiences of coming to the country and settling in Nottingham in 1945 and his experiences of racism but also great kindness and care and so it's very inspirational to kind of hear these people who I looked up to who were massive inspirational forces for me you know doing caring things but also just talking about human beings and and I guess human psychology and and I guess in a way the contrast between people who could be really kind and caring and people who could be very harmful and and cruel and rejecting and so yeah I guess I sort of had a a milieu in a way of of interest uh, stimulated from that and then the direct thing that took me into psychology was uh, when I was I was studying uh, uh, psychology as an undergrad but I I did a a four-year degree in which the third year I had to do a, a sort of a placement year in in industry or in the NHS and it's fair to say that I was enjoying university a little bit too much and uh, <laughs> having a few too many drinks in the student union and so on. And I kind of missed the deadline for it. So I missed all the adverts that they had up in our <laughs> psychology department. I'd completely just screwed it up. And anyway, I was back uh, at, in the summer holidays back in Nottingham and around a good friend of mine's. And I was talking to him about this saying, oh, I've messed up and I'm having to scramble around trying to find a placement now. And uh, his dad was home from work. His dad was a GP in Nottingham and overheard me talking about this and said, look, would you like me to have a look to see if there's any psychologist that I could recommend here in Nottingham? Oh, wow. So I didn't think any more of it and then got a phone call from him a couple of weeks later saying, look, I've never met this guy, but there's this uh, professor in Derby called Paul Gilbert. Um, Maybe you could write him a letter. 
<laughs> so basically how I've ended up doing a lot of CFT stuff uh, is through serendipity, really, through me being a bit lazy and hungover, <laughs> and then uh, a mate's dad overhearing a conversation, and one thing led to another, and I turned up at, at Paul Gilbert's uh, research centre in Derby, and um, and that was it. So that was in 1999 that I met Paul and started oh. working with him, and then went back after I, I qualified, uh, after I got my degree in did a, a placement or well, sort of work position there as a research psychologist and did my PhD part-time with him. So basically that was me done for basically. <laughs> and I oh. laugh I'm teaching Amy and I, uh, somebody once said to me that I, um, I was brainwashed by Paul Gilbert because Paul <laughs> was basically the first clinical psychologist I ever met. So compassion focused therapy was the first model I ever was introduced to really. Oh, uh, but I guess if you if you're going to be brainwashed in something, then maybe compassion ain't the worst thing in the world. Not at all. Oh, gosh. And what, what seemed like such an error at the time for you. <laughs> yes. Like, oh, my God, I've screwed this up. What am I going to do? Like, I'm not going to have a placement. This is awful. And, <sighs> gosh, how wonderful that that was the path that you ended up on. A lot of luck, a lot of serendipity, and, and, and later on a lot of hard work. But the initial bit was was definitely fortuitous. Yeah, fantastic. So so what do you do with your time now as a helping professional? What does that look like? Um, a real big mixture, which is one of the things I, I love most about uh, my working life, really. So I still see uh, lots of clients uh, each week, which is wonderful. So I still do get to do lots of compassion-focused therapy. I supervise maybe, I don't know, eight, nine, ten people a week uh, in their compassion-focused therapy work. Um, I tend to do some writing and also some research. So there's lots of different research projects that I'm doing at the moment. And then just other sort of, uh, uh, I guess, bits and pieces in terms of just trying to get compassion out there into the world. I think that's been one of my passions recently, of just trying to find how we could take this amazing model that Paul developed uh, and see if we could just bring it into the world more. So various projects, whether it's the app or online courses or just different ways that the general public can begin to access some of these you know, fantastic ideas. And then I guess the rest of the time is business stuff, really. Um, there's a couple of businesses that um, I uh, sort of lead on. Uh, so there's Balanced Minds, which is our therapy practice. And then I'm just about to launch another organization called BALO, which uh, stands for Balanced Organizations, which is going to be a, uh, how to bring compassion into organizations. So it's going to be very focused on how we can bring these ideas to businesses, to law Brilliant. firms, to schools, to uh, the NHS, to all sorts of different places, really. So, so yeah, that keeps me, uh, I guess it keeps me busy and mostly out of trouble. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that, yeah, lots of interesting things that I get to do. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I love the sound of the new organisation. That's, that's brilliant. And I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of my supervisees about this um, and other colleagues, that diversity of practice, I think, really helps us keep this sustainable, hey? Yeah, and I think it's such a lovely point that you're making. I mean, I, again, I guess I, I felt very lucky, really. Uh, you know, my, my mentor in psychology has been Paul Gilbert. And so yeah. I got to see him day in, day out doing such a wide range of psychological activities from being a clinician to supervising people to doing research and supervising people and you know, getting into the you know the sort of hands-on bit of the research writing research papers writing theory papers giving speeches 
you know so all these types of things you know having to run research units you know so that sort yeah. of side of things as well so I guess I, I you know that was my inspiration I got to see this person doing all these different things and and I guess as I've gone through my career I've recognized that I, I love lots of different things about my job and, and I guess it can be a downside in the sense that sometimes you end up spinning lots of different plates and uh feel that yeah. you're sort of dragged in different directions but I also think it gives you that energy as you were touching on there that sort of sense really of if you enjoy it and if you love it then of course it, it allows you to keep your hand into lots of different areas it keeps you very stimulated you learn so much from different areas from my super busy from my clients from the research that I do yeah. and it all feels like it sort of feeds into each other so um yeah. so yeah I think it's if people can find that mixture of things that they really love in life then uh, certainly for me it's worked out uh, really beautifully yeah certainly and I, and I guess there's people as well who you know I, I think for myself you know diversity because I can get bored easily and I like to get energized by new and different things but I guess for some people it could be that they they want to get into client work or whatever it is that they're doing academia or whatever and then that's it. They just want to stay doing that one thing. And that's obviously a very valid choice as well. Um, but yeah, can we just exactly. focus a little bit? Um, many people out there are running private practices. And I know that you have a large private practice based in London and Edinburgh that you run with your partners, Corinna and Charlie. So what do you think are the biggest challenges for private practice owners? And yeah. also, how do you think compassion yeah. can help with these? Um, I mean, they're great questions. Um, I mean, we we have started off Balance Minds something like 10 or 11 years ago now, and it was just this very small little thing that we were doing alongside our full-time jobs working in the NHS. And now we've kind of grown to, I think we're the biggest organization offering compassion-focused therapy anywhere in the world. Um, wow. so, I mean, obviously there's... There's the NHS, but, you know, back in the UK, but you can't go specifically to any part of the NHS and say, I want this thing. So we're yeah. in that sort of sense. So, so it's been a wonderful journey, but I guess that's, it. you know, there are lots of challenges that come with that. Yeah. And, and I guess the intriguing thing for me is that the skills that you develop as a therapist um, sometimes are useful when you turn towards running a business <laughs> Often a completely different set of skills that you need. And, and at yeah. this stage, sort of 10, 11 years down the road, we're only really getting to the stage of beginning to really think about things like marketing and getting our websites sorted out properly and, <laughs> and lots of other types of things in which we have never really had to think about before. But when I speak to like my friends or people who are actual businesswomen and businessmen, they kind of laugh in a way. I say, what, yeah. what do you mean you never thought about these things before? So constantly learning, constantly keeping an open mind. And I think this is the challenge really in that, uh, as we were talking about before, uh, if you have a single interest in some ways, it's easier because you can just focus yeah. on that thing and you're able to spend more time on it. The problem with having lots of different interests, and that's been the case for Charlie, Karina and myself, is that it's then quite difficult sometimes to make sure that you've got enough time to focus on, on all the different areas to grow a successful business. And, yeah. and so I think we've, we've you know, worked really hard and done really well in many ways. But I think the challenge for me has been really recognizing just how many different aspects there are to running a successful business 
and just how many things you have to learn uh, and things that actually you never got taught in doing an undergrad psychology degree or my clinical training. So many different areas. And I found it actually very interesting. I, I've, yeah. I've actually found it fascinating to learn about those things. But the, the hardest thing for me has been time. And so yeah. finding ways then to create enough space so that your mind isn't hopping around onto lots of different tasks. And, and I think that's where compassion can be really supportive of this process because it's very easy at times, I guess, to feel overwhelmed. Uh, yeah. So many different tasks that need to be done to have that bit of, I guess, distress tolerance in a way to be able to sit alongside and to be with uh, my emotions and, and I guess my threat system. Uh, and also to hold that sort of balance feel, uh, you know, alongside myself, really, and recognizing that there's only a certain amount that I can do, that that compassion, motivation towards self means that you don't get too caught up in self-criticism or rumination for mistakes or things that haven't quite happened, but also being able to look in, and I guess a, hopefully a healthy way in the sense that I can always feel my drive system pulling on me. There's always yeah. more things to do. There's always another thing that we could be working on or doing this or doing that. And, and how much tipping too far into drive system can actually cause problems. You know, I think one of the intriguing things for me in the CFT model you know, drive system, as you know, Haley, is a, is a wonderful thing, but pretty much everyone that I know in the CFT community have problems with their drive systems in the sense that everyone <laughs> works so hard, they're all sort of out there just, you know, contributing so much. And, and it can be hard, can't it, to slow down sometimes and to create a balance so that you're not tipping too much into to drive. And, and certainly I've found that bringing compassion has been an important aspect for me in which I can notice when drive systems pulling me too fast, too strong, too much. When I feel that that threat system underneath is, is heating it as well, that threat-based drive aspect, yeah. certainly from, I know that in my life and then finding ways just to tolerate, slow down, ground myself again and again and again. Yeah, absolutely. I talk a lot with other people and, and look out for myself with that threat-based drive because it can be tricky, can't it? You can think, oh, no, this is just healthy drive. And it's like, actually, what's motivating this drive? <laughs> it's it's sneaky, isn't it? Really yeah, it can sneaky, be very sneaky. Really that's that, that's that tricky brain we've got. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think your point as well is we, we have like the sort of therapist hat that we put on but then we have to remember we've got like the business hat that we wear as well and separating yeah. those they're not the same um and yeah. they take different skills and yes some of the therapy skills can be really helpful in business but they're not enough and we don't get taught any of this stuff you know and so many people are going into private practice and then feeling so overwhelmed because they don't have the skills because they've never had the opportunity to learn them in how to actually run a business whilst being a helping professional. And some of those things yeah. can be conflictual as well, can't they? Massively so. I remember when we first started off Balanced Minds, uh, it, it, I felt very, very conflicted. I'd always had a very strong passion about working in the NHS, uh, about providing care free. Well, I guess it's not free in the sense that people still pay for it through taxes, yeah. but free at the point of access. And so that was always for me personally a very important thing and, and actually it was a conversation with Paul Gilbert that really helped me to shift because uh, I was chatting to Paul one day and I got to stage at working in the NHS when I was higher up in management and I used to spend gosh so much of my week you know sat in meetings and we were having to talk about how many millions we're going to have to cut in the budget and and how this staff member was underperforming and you know all these kind of things and you know in some ways it was kind of interesting but I, when I was speaking to Paul, Paul, Paul was saying you know what do you want to do in your career though Chris? And mm. I said, well, you know, I want to do compassion stuff. 
And he was like, well, can you do enough compassion stuff in the job that you're doing? Can you do enough CFT stuff in the job you're doing? And I said, no, I can't. And he said, well, there's your answer. You need to go and find the direction where you get to do as much of the CFT work as you want to do. And so for me, that was a very liberating thing because suddenly it was about following CFT and compassion rather than following some uh, an idea that was a very important one to me, but one I was holding on maybe too tightly to, in which you know I should work for the NHS. Whereas actually, I think I've also been able to bring uh, helpful stuff by not being within the NHS and and having more time to be able to spread some of the CFT ideas. So, so I hear what you're saying. There's a, there, there can be a lot of conflict. There certainly has been in me, but also I think you touched on a really good point. That difference between, and this is something that I've had to try to learn over the years having maybe two or three clients and, and getting into that motivation and that mind state, yeah. switching them to have to do business stuff within that same time frame, like an hour later, it's very difficult to do that. I, I have to do a little bit of practice myself almost to leave one to move into the other because yeah. as you rightly pointed out, there are different motivations. You're bringing on different systems yeah. online and, and actually they're bouncing in between them. I remember there was a period of time many years ago that sometimes I would try to do a bit of business stuff in between seeing clients yeah. just pulling on the wrong psychologies. And so creating space for this is my time where I'm supervising, this is my time where I'm seeing clients. And then on a separate day, this is what I'm doing. Uh, research stuff or business development stuff that's something which has has really worked well for me over time yeah yeah we need to really stop and consider it don't we and I think that that's beautiful that Paul asked you that and and I was speaking to a supervisor the other day and asked the question what is it you want to do in your business and it was almost like what do you mean so what do you want to do it's it's not just what you should be doing or what you have think you have to do we can actually stop and think, well, what is it I want to do? What are, what are my values? What do I find interesting and meaningful? What do I find enjoyable? And how can I create a business for myself around that as well? And even if you're employed, are there ways that you can have conversations with management about kind of redesigning your work so that it is a good fit for you? I think it's a lovely question. What do you want? So you teach and research about compassion. And you're the author of numerous books, including the Compassionate Mind workbook that you did with Dr. Elaine Beaumont, who's also been on the podcast, and the Compassionate Mind approach to difficult emotions using compassion-focused therapy, and also experiencing compassion-focused therapy from the inside out with Russell Coltz, who also has been on the podcast, (laughs) Tobin Bell, and James Bennett-Levy. So I'm curious, through all that... What has been your own biggest learning? <laughs> <laughs> Just a small question. <laughs> not, not to write any more books. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I'm, I'm partly serious. I have actually promised uh, my wife that I won't write uh, any more books for the time being because okay. uh, one of the intriguing things, uh, as much as I enjoy doing them, gosh, they are full-on experiences and take so much time from from life and and I guess from family life as well and and so a big learning lesson for me is that you know I I always try to um, uh, dedicate enough time to create the best books possible and these you know whatever project I'm working on but recognizing that um, uh, I think it's that whole thing when you first start coming up with an idea I and I think I'm not the only one here underestimate how much time this is going to take and that was certainly the case 
up until the last book. Uh, finally, on my fifth book, I kind of realized actually this takes a long, bloody time. And so <laughs> the first initial books, you know, completely underestimated it and ended up, you know, sort of up at five in the morning having to work and, you know, sort of after, you know, finishing work in the evening would sometimes do late night, you know, very late wow. nights, weekends at times. And so my learning lesson has been that uh, if I'm not careful, my passion, and I guess back to what we were talking about earlier, my drive system can take yeah. me into doing things in which even though I enjoy it, my time gets swallowed up in it. And yeah. although in some ways I'm lucky because I got so much pleasure out of doing these things and I learned so much at the same time, looking back now, I, I don't want my life to be balanced like that because it wasn't balanced. Um, yeah. And so the learning lesson for me is that whenever I'm taking on any new project, whether it is, you know, if it would be a book in the future, whether it's research, whether it's doing anything really, yeah. really being able to tap into my compassionate self and to yeah. remember how I have previously been and underestimated time and really looking at this and, and trying to look from a balcony really and, and judging, do I have enough time for this? What am I going to be able to do to dedicate time around this? And also, and maybe this is one of the single most important things that I've ever learned, is, is then learning to say no. So when yes. new things come along that are very exciting and shiny and, and wonderful, I have to say no, because I now have the wisdom to recognize that uh, in the past I didn't. And that was the thing that then started causing problems. So uh, saying yeah. no for me has been one of the most important things that I've learned through my career. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I think it's really about getting to know yourself, isn't it? It's, it's having that real being tuned in to yourself, what your limits are, what your strengths are. And that learning to say no piece is so, so important, isn't it? And and for me, I always remind myself, it's not necessarily a no full stop. It could be a no, not yet. Yes. Exactly. No, no, not yet. But I'll speak to you again in the new year, and maybe we could, maybe we could do something then, or contact me again in three months and ask me again. Or um, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that point you're making though about knowing yourself is such a wonderful one. I mean, it, for me, it links into CFT stuff in, in lovely ways. I mean, yeah. one, of course, we talk a lot in CFT, as you know, about uh, about wisdom being an important part of the compassion itself, and, and wisdom is often described as, as knowledge plus experience. Yeah. And I think that's a really intriguing thing about how you're mixing these things together. So younger version of Chris didn't have that knowledge plus experience to yeah. be able to be wise in that moment. Whereas this version of Chris, I won't say that I'm wise, but I certainly have more experience and more knowledge and that I can hopefully apply to myself of knowing myself really, knowing where I'm about to say yes to something when I actually know that I'm going to be really stretched or that I recognize that something's pulling on my drive system and I've got that familiar feeling, I'm getting excited, but having to slow myself down and, and maybe chatting through with other people as sort of anchors to my own mind. You know, I'm thinking about doing this thing, what do you reckon? And so recognizing that if it's just internal, my drive system, as we said earlier, can be so sneaky that before I know yeah. it, I've kind of emailed this person back saying, yeah, of course, without consciously being aware. Whereas <laughs> actually if I was going down to a friend and actually talk through, you know, they're almost shaking their head. Like, what are you thinking about, Chris? You know, yeah. Just, you know, maybe next year, or as you're saying, Hayley, like delay it, slow it down. So so I think over time, getting to know myself in that way is, is yeah, brought a big change to, to my working life. Yeah, I think you bring in that beautiful piece as well, isn't it? That we're, we are social beings. 
we're driven to connect and actually reaching out to others as part of that system of how can I know myself better? Well, part of yeah. how we can know ourselves better is actually to ask people close to us as well, isn't it? What do you think? Mass- yeah, and they can go, no, no, remember you said yes last time. And you were like <laughs> exactly. really resentful hold, about it. Or <laughs> They can hold the mirror up to you. The only thing, though, is you have to be careful who you ask. This who is you ask. a very strong drive system. And I've had that a few times where, uh, so Charlie Harriet Maitland, uh, some people will know listening, uh, is a good friend of mine and uh, colleague, uh, a fantastic psychologist and uh, the problem with chatting to Charlie about these things is that both of us come at it with drive system and so that's always been an issue for us that we can <laughs> say oh what about this oh my god that would be amazing let's do it and so you have to also have the wisdom to know like when do you speak to somebody who is quite drive system orientated and when do you speak to somebody who's a little bit more balanced maybe even a little bit threat system based who can actually come up with some of the difficulties and the potential problems because as much as you might not want to hear it yeah, that's actually important if I can allow that in. Yeah. See, you are wise, Chris. You see, that's very wise. <laughs> know who to so... talk to and when. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> Fantastic. So can we can we think about this a little bit more broadly? How do you think cultivating a compassionate mind can assist us as human beings navigating this thing we call life? Um Gosh, I guess we could speak all day about uh, about that, couldn't we? Um, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that you know sort of immediately you know jump to mind. Um, one of them that that sometimes I, I talk about when I'm uh, teaching or sometimes uh, in therapy, and it always sort of fascinates me to remind myself really is that if we all think about it, we will spend far more time in our life in relationship with ourselves than we will do with anybody else that we meet and if we add up every single hour that we're in a relationship to other people whether it's our partners our family members our kids our friends our colleagues it comes nowhere close to how many hours we spend in relationship with ourselves and so the key thing for me though is or two bits one is uh what type of relationship do we have with ourselves uh do we tend to treat ourselves with the same kindness the same care the same nurturance as we do the people that we love around us. But secondly, how many of us have been actively taught how to be in relationship with ourselves? How many of us have have learned this, acquired this in any particular way? And and of course, it turns out that whilst we have amazing things that we learn at school from the sciences, maths and languages and all this amazing stuff, most people who have ever gone to a school never get taught about their minds never get taught about their own internal relationship and so I think this whole idea about compassion uh, about CFT and the idea of the compassion itself for me the starting point in any of this stuff is how important it is to cultivate and have access to a part of me that could be wise that could be strong and grounded that could be committed to myself and others uh, and then of course learning how to be that version how to yeah. put that version in work towards whatever it might be that crops up in life from the the joys and the excitements that some of the stuff we've been touching on but also to the great pains and the the great distressing things that turn up in all human beings lives so I think for me that that center ground really of of the creation of being able to access and then utilize a compassionate self that has certain qualities is the the most important thing and if my son could learn that for himself 
if I could know at this moment, he's he'll be four on the 1st of September. So if I could imagine in 15 years time or 20 years time or 30 years time, knowing that he had access to this thing, this compassionate self, I would be a very, very, very happy father. It would leave me knowing that he has something internal to him, which can be there alongside whatever happens to him in life. And that's, I think the the thing that struck me the more that I've practiced this idea of the compassionate self is that I have a kind of confidence now. And it's a kind of confidence in which, strangely, I know that if something bad happens in my life, I'll be okay. So I was chatting to somebody the other day about this and saying, uh, look, if I don't think my wife has ever cheated on me, but if I found out that she cheated on me and that she left me, I'd be devastated. But I also know I'd be okay. Yeah. Because there's a part of me that knows that I can be open to that pain and that I would be able to find a path through and that yeah. underneath it all, I would be okay in the end. I would find happiness again. I would be able to manage. And so there's a, a confidence that that breeds, I think, in which it's not dissociating from the pains of life. It's the yeah. confidence to know that you can be in the presence of it and to be able to do something helpful with it. And I think that's, you know, for me personally, it's it's maybe one of the greatest things that I've learned uh, yeah. uh, for myself. And, and it would be one of the things that I'd be happiest to know that other people uh, around me could have for themselves as well. Yeah, I'd I'd absolutely agree. I think that relationship with ourselves is paramount. And, you know, I've I've spoken many times about the, you know, learning CFT and compassionate mind training has been life changing for me. Mm. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I think you can rest assured that you have spread the, the work of compassionate mind to many, many people on this planet, Chris. And, certainly your son who I'm shocked he's he's going to be four I'm like my gosh he was like this tiny baby at the conference (laughs) was he nearly four um but to have you and Corinne as parents I think he's 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 going to find that compassionate self he's he's really strong chance that that's going to happen he might do although the other way you could see it is that as a child where both of your parents are psychologists um <laughs> that, that's also a bit of a challenge I don't think I necessarily want that for, for every single <laughs> child. so the, the, yeah, he's, he's going to have some different influences going on for him but yeah you're absolutely right ultimately if he's able to develop that and if we're able to allow and facilitate that in him then then I, I would you know have a sense that actually I could I could be confident that he's got something that he'll be able to use to face life's difficulties yeah absolutely so I hear from people all the time about the challenges of taking care of ourselves and I think you know again and we could talk about this all day um but you sort of touched on you know I'm working on that I'm working on this I'm working on that <clears throat> what do you find are the biggest challenges that you face in taking care of yourself both within and outside of your work um it's definitely definitely to do with drive system and time yeah 100% for me so the greatest challenges I I face ultimately with this is when I feel my time is squeezed. So when I feel my time is squeezed and I've got lots of things to do, things start dropping off my list. So I, I don't exercise anymore. I end up sleeping less. I take less care of myself because I've got all these things that I need to finish. And, and a lot of the time it's tricky because like I said before, my drive system is very strong and therefore I can be enjoying doing these things. So it's not even like I'm doing them and resentful and, and sort of angry. And, you know, the sort of 
the, the positive thing about feeling your threat system coming online because you can listen to it and then start taking different you know directions. You almost it feels so unpleasant that I'm not going to yeah. do this again. But the problem for me is that my drive system gives me so much pleasure in doing lots of these projects, and I can get added in and added in that it, I get to a point where I don't realize that other things are dropping out. And so, in terms yeah. of self care and healthiness of life, generally speaking. What then happens, like I say, is I, I start living a version of life in which I, I, without realizing sometimes, start dropping out things which I know logically and I, and I would support other people to do are things that need to be centered around to me. And so I think that's one, one issue for me. So that's that's the sort of drive system. And I guess it's partly internal, but with these projects. And then I think personally, maybe what I've learned having recently moved from, from London to Portugal has been that the external environment around me can also make a big difference. And as much as I really enjoyed living in London, London for me is is threat-based drive. You know, yeah. it's a city, yeah. it's very, it's very threat-based drive and, and a lot of drive system stuff. People are super busy, they're working long hours, they go out after work to, to drink and to eat, and it's this yeah. non-stop lifestyle. And so I think knowing internally what my drive system is like and then it being met externally with an environment like London which is very pacey and quick that combination I can be I can be running at a pace without running realizing that I'm running too fast and that it's actually only been since moving to Portugal and slowing down working less being outdoors more having the sun shining more and living in a, a city where gosh, the pace is so slow in comparison that I've realized that without being fully conscious, the environment that I was previously living in was interacting in a negative way, I think, yeah. with my internal drive system. Uh, and that actually now being here, everything feels a little bit more steady that I can, mm. I don't have so many external influences re-stimulating yeah. or fueling, I guess, my internal capacity for, for drive system. Yeah. So I think that's been a big learning thing for me uh, and recognizing that that's, that's something I need to hold on to and, and why actually uh, having greater balance in part, uh, I think the external to internal is quite an interesting thing to hold in mind. Yeah, I think that's great, that noticing that you, the context that you're in will either yeah. play into or not this, this internal system that's working yes. as well. And again, it comes back to knowing yourself, doesn't it? I'm willing to look at myself, notice why I do certain things and work on that relationship with yourself to say, well, actually, this isn't working for me. I'm going to make, I'm going to make a different decision. I'm going to take care of myself in a different way. Um, yeah. I, I didn't realize at the time I, I moved to Australia when I was 25, there was something in me that knew that being where I was was not helpful for me. And yeah. moving over here was um the start of some much more healthy changes for me in my life but I really like the point you made before as well that you know and and this is where it can be tricky because I think oftentimes people get really busy and they take on lots of stuff and then it's like oh my gosh I'm so overwhelmed I'm doing too much it feels bad what you're saying is actually you don't notice that so it's not as easy to see, but it's then when you look and think, oh, actually, when did I last exercise? Oh, no, I haven't been. Oh, actually, when did I last do this or go for a checkup or whatever it might be? Oh, no, I haven't been. Oh, I've been so enjoying exactly. being in my drive system, getting really busy, that you don't see it as unhelpful. 
Exactly. I had, um, exactly. yeah. Well, one of my, um, well, my first guest that I had on the podcast, um, Dr. Jacques Risk is a psychologist in Melbourne and he was my office roommate when I was at uni. Mm. And he was saying how he would start using humour a lot. Yeah. And so you, you're kind of being all joking, jovial and not, not see that necessarily as a bad thing until you get to know yourself. And yeah. then you can say, oh, actually... When I realize I'm doing this, I know for me that I'm getting out of balance. Um, exactly. You know, when you're like, oh, I'm really, really enjoying being so busy. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. Probably need to check in on that. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's again this whole thing, isn't it? It's, it's easier to notice things when they are, you know, noticeably distressing or painful so for example yeah. if it's our bodies you know and, and suddenly you know you bend over to pick something up and you oh yeah. you know and you get that shooting pain in your back I mean that's so obvious you can't ignore it whereas yeah. when it's a subtle pain something that can yeah. be in the background that you can kind of just get used to over time you it's far more difficult I think to tune in and do something about that and so I think this whole thing about, and, and this is where coming back, I guess, to the CFT model and to the definition of compassion, the idea of sensitivity, yes. first psychology, is so important because for me, one of the issues can be is that it, when it's subtle and it's quiet, when your threat system is giving you little blips, but a little bit like you get, you know, uh, with a radar, you know, it's a small blip. It's not one of those big ones you see on those sort of US films where it's like a great big destroyer coming to blow up the, the base or whatever. It's like a little blip that it can go unnoticed. And I think that's one of the tricky things sometimes. And so yeah. listening, like finding ways to really slow down and to listen, to tune in, which of course, you know, mindfulness and other things can begin to support us to do, but beginning to recognize. And, and also I think your point earlier in knowing yourself is that you kind of know where you can trick yourself. Yeah. And that bit where you're more honest with yourself over time. I mean, sometimes there are very external things, like, for example, you, you for me, I don't know, putting on a, a pair of shorts and realizing that actually it's hard to, to fit them, then thinking, why, why are these not fitting me? When was the last time I went to the gym? Oh, it was six months ago. Oh, you know, so then you sort of work back. Ah, I get to see how I just haven't been tracking this at all. Whereas... Of course, the more that actually you begin to know yourself and you recognize that actually I know what's going on here. And this is the bit where being sensitive in those early stages to it and that whole idea. I know it's cliche, but nipping it in the bud, that whole bit yeah. where you can actually start taking responsibility for these things without beating myself up. And I think that's a crucial thing because the more you get caught up in that shame and that self-criticism or, or just the avoidance I don't want to look at it whereas of course if you can just be in the presence of it and kind of smile really I kind of know this is how I am I know this is how my brain is wired and as you said earlier the tricky brain but you can just get used to it okay, yeah let's, let me think about taking some steps to take responsibility yeah so yeah when we, when we notice it because it can be the time then can't it for the self-critic to kind of jump in and be like Yes, yeah, going to town on us, and if we can, then offer ourselves compassion, um, or exactly. even just start to try and offer ourselves compassion. Treat ourselves yeah, the way definitely. we might treat a loved one, and what we might say to them if they had, you know, been doing something that wasn't so helpful for themselves, and start to criticise. But it is tricky. It's hard being human, right? 
very hard being human, really, really hard being human. And, and I recognize that I've, I've failed at being <laughs> many, many, many times, but it's that lovely bit in which, you know, um, uh, Michael Jordan, the, um, you know, the famous basketballer, you know, his whole point is yeah. that how many shots he's missed in his life, yeah. how many times he's failed. And it's that whole thing, isn't it? In which, although somewhat cliche, you begin to realize it's okay making these mistakes it's okay getting caught back up in these patterns but after a while how do I do that whole bit about it's on one hand it's not my fault but uh, I, I need to take responsibility it's important and that again my compassionate self is the part of me that can hold me to account but in a non-judging yeah. non-blaming kind of way yeah absolutely it's just such a beautiful framework for not only for us to use with our clients in therapy but to use for ourselves as a way of living life, I think. Yeah, yeah, completely. Absolutely. And I think that's the other bit, isn't it? That, you know, sort of often talking to thinking about myself, but also thinking about the clinicians that, you know, I work with and supervise. And it's this recognition, isn't it, for our, you know, for those of uh, people who are listening here and therapists, you know, your, your job basically is going to involve day in, day out, going into some of the most distressing things that can ever happen to a human being. And so your job is basically to enter threat system again and again and again. And one of the things that I've been passionately trying to advocate for, but also thinking about hopefully doing some research on in the near future, is it's kind of borrowing ideas from elsewhere, really, and particularly borrowing from, um, from athletes, because the comparison thing for me is, you know, I don't know, we've just had Wimbledon in the UK, say, or there's the uh, World Championships uh, athletics on at the moment in the US. You know, the idea that you'd have Usain Bolt doing 100 metres in, you know, the Olympics final, or the athletics uh, championships final, or Serena Williams coming onto centre court and serving for Wimbledon final uh, without having warmed up yeah. is ridiculous. The idea that they just turn up and they just sprint their fastest or they just get straight into doing dynamic energy and exercise is ridiculous because of course all of us know that they will spend a lot of time preparing their bodies and minds for the activity they're going to do but yeah. one of the things that I've been trying to uh, think about with people is how come we don't do that as clinicians yeah how come we don't warm up before we do our events which is to go into the some of the most severe and distressing things that can happen to human beings and so the idea in some ways I mean, I know some clinicians do do a version of this, but most people I talk to have never been taught on their training courses that maybe we need to prepare our bodies and minds psychologically and, and I guess physiologically, certainly from the CFT point of view, trying to tap into this idea of the compassionate self, the vagus nerve and so on. Yeah. And to have that as the part of us that's warmed up and prepped to then go in and do our sessions. And, and then also, if I stretch the analogy, it's that whole point that after Usain Bolt has finished his race or after Serena yeah. Williams has finished the final, it doesn't matter where they won or lost, but they will warm down. They will take time again to allow their bodies to do healthy things. And again, very few of us have learned that through our trainings that maybe just yeah. maybe after seeing five, six, seven people in a day who are very, very distressed that maybe we need to uh, consciously warm yeah. down and of course from my point of view the compassion itself then is the vehicle that allows us to warm yeah. up but also the vehicle that allows us to warm down as well so so I think you've got such an important point that you're touching on here and, and these are the kind of ideas that I think if we can begin to spread them they could uh, lead to huge benefits not just for clinicians of all sorts of stripes but teachers and social workers yeah. and many people oh. who are doing caring roles I think it could make Absolutely. a huge difference 
Absolutely. And and the reality is, and I imagine it's the same in the UK, but certainly a lot of um, practitioners I talk to over here in Australia, um, is lots of people do back-to-back sessions. They literally have one client walk out the door and they barely have time to go to the bathroom or get a drink of water and another client's coming in and there's not space. I always encourage people who I work with to start trying to create some space between sessions but I remember um, the first annual Compassionate Mind Summit and Retreat in New York, and you zoomed in and yeah. did some training for us. And you talked about the before, during, and after concept with Compassionate Self. Yeah. And that stayed with me a lot about, you know, how can we prepare for whatever it is that we're going into? And then how can we be compassionate with ourselves during and then afterwards, which is often a time when the critic wants to show up and say, oh, you session you just did them was a bit crap um you're not a very good therapist are you uh, <laughs> how can you then actually contact your exactly. compassionate self and be with yourself in a way that is kind and nurturing after that as well and that's certainly something I've held with me since then and you know using my work with other practitioners so thank you for introducing me to that because that I think has been something that is really valuable nice to hear and I think just finding practical ways to embody our compassionate selves I think is for me one of the most crucial things it's wonderful to be able to sit and do 10 minutes of closed eyes practice listening to a guided audio but in the end we also need to find very practical pragmatic ways to help people to actually be this version in their life and so that's why some of these ideas that I've been trying to work on try to speak to that because I that's personally what I find a benefit as well is having actual practical tangible things that yeah. I can tap into in the moment um so no, yeah. that's really nice to hear. thank you yeah oh thank you so and again it's it's a big question that <laughs> I'm asking you to distill something down to one piece of advice (laughs) but what would be one piece of advice that you would share with our listeners um i think that the the main bit of advice is to to build the part of you that you're going to need that you're going to be able to rely upon that you're going to be able to turn to and utilize i guess as we were just talking about this idea whether it's the pda the pre during or after this idea of warming up or warming down you you first need to build something to be able to do that you need to be able to prepare something so i think uh, the big bit of advice really would be if we can create and spend time building a part of self that essentially will be a mate going forward that will be the thing you can turn to that you can proximity seek that will be this secure base and safe haven I guess looking at lots of those wonderful attachment theory type qualities there that Bobby talked about for me that's gold dust that's that's it once you've got that there then of course you you have to use it it's you know there's no point having it there and not turning to it but but you can't use it if you don't have it it's a little bit like with fitness isn't it I sometimes use the analogy really with sort of CFT practices that you know, it's a little bit like if I go down to the, the gym or go running, I don't know, four or five times a week, uh, and I do that for three months, I will build fitness. And that's going to 
reduce my blood pressure, it's going to increase my bone density, and it'll do a whole bunch of things for my cardiovascular system that we all know is healthy. And, and to a certain extent, that's the case too when you're doing compassionate mind training practices that you say practice and you've got your eyes closed doing your compassionate self. If you do that regularly, we know that there are all sorts of wonderful benefits physiologically and psychologically from doing that. But so it's having that, but then it's being able to put it into place. So this would be, I guess, the, the adjunct, the second part of the, uh, the advice really is that if I have been doing physical fitness five days a week for three months, if I then try to, I have to fly to go and do some teaching somewhere. And if I turn up at the airport in Lisbon and I'm a little bit late, being able to run then for two minutes across the airport uh, hall to be able to get to the gate and catch my flight. I can do that if I've been running regularly. Yeah. I can put my to work. But if I haven't been doing fitness training, then even if I want to run and sprint for two minutes, I'm not going to be able to do it. And it's similar with the compassion itself. You, you need to have something developed. You have to have some sort of fitness first to then be able to turn towards it when basically your threat system gets hot. Uh, and so those two things, basically, the, the building capacity and then utilizing it when you need it, those would be the, you know, the, the, the major thing that I'd advise anybody if they are keen to, to learn how compassion can help them. Yeah, very, very good advice, I would say. Very good advice. So this is a question I love to ask all my guests. If you could meet your 80-year-old self, what do you think your future self would say to you? Um, I'll be very pleased. I could, if I can get to 80, I'll be very happy. That'll be the first thing. So I reckon I'd give him a hug and say, well done. Uh, you must've done something all right to make it through to that age. But I think as, as eight year old version turning back to me, um, I think one of the things that, you know, I think would stand out most would, um, uh, would actually be a very simple thing, which I guess links to what we've been talking about really, which is slow down. Um, so the first thing I think would be in a way, I, I think that version of Chris would be quite proud of what I've done recently in switching to Portugal, working less, being outdoors more, exercising more. So he would almost probably have a bit of a wry smile and say, I told you so. <laughs> Fantastic. In that area. <laughs> uh, so you probably would be quite happy taking the piss out of me. But um, but I think that, that first bit of slowing down. And then I think, you know, just that whole bit, I, I, I remember my mum uh, telling me about this when I was maybe 16 or 17, repeating this phrase that many of you would have heard. Uh, she said, youth is wasted on the young, Chris. Yeah. And it's something that's really stuck with me. If I could go back at any stage, really, and speak to a younger version of myself, it's that whole communicating the knowledge, you know, whatever you think is difficult, whatever's going on here, I mean, it's real, but... Trust me, 20-year-old version of you has got it good. You know, yeah. now as a 44-year-old, yeah. I speak to my 30-year-old self and say, you know what, you've got it good. Your body works fine. You don't get these aches and pains. And so I think <laughs> as eight-year-old version, it would be reminding myself of exactly that. You know, trust me, fella. <laughs> you know, by yeah. the time you get to 80, you'll learn anything that you think is aches and pains and difficulties going on uh, for you at 44. You know, it gets it gets a bit tougher actually, and and I guess the playful point really is 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 you know what it would lead me to is is really just living life in a bit more of a liberated way, in that yeah. way in which it just opens you up to recognizing many ways that life is short and that what you have now is going to change and and you know you might not be able to have that same capacity to to run or to swim or to do this or to do that or to work and 
And so in a way, what it allows you to do is both appreciate and enjoy what is, but also maybe not get too caught up. And I don't mean it in an invalidating way, but not getting too caught up with some of those day-to-day things, which sometimes feel like they're so pressing and so all-consuming. Whereas actually with that vantage point, if you're looking down from the balcony, you begin to see, you know yeah. what, it's all right. These things pass. It's all right. And yeah. so, yeah, I think that's, uh, if I ever got to meet him, uh, we'd have a beer, we'd have a bit of a chat, <laughs> have a bit of a laugh, and hopefully he'd be able to advise me a little bit too. That's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. I just love asking people that question. Um, so you, you touched on some new projects um, which is called Ballo. Ballo, yeah. Ballo, yeah. B-A-L-O, so Balanced Organisations, yes. Fantastic. And you mentioned very briefly earlier that the app, which um, is the yeah. self-compassion app, isn't it? And I spoke to Dr. Elaine yeah. Beaumont, who is your co-creator of that, um, in a previous episode about that. Yeah. So other than the, the app, um, and you're welcome to talk a little bit more about Ballo, but are there any other sort of current projects or research that you're currently working on? Yeah, I guess there's, there's lots of different things, really. And I guess this goes back to what we were saying earlier, Haley, about just, you know, having lots of different interests, really. So I guess I'm quite lucky at this stage of my career that I can work with wonderful uh, psychologists doing their training or early stage psychologists doing research. And so some wonderful research projects at the moment. So one which is looking at... Uh, if you take people just through the psychoeducation of CFT, so like the three system model or the yeah. tricky brain idea or that we're socially shaped, can that bring changes to people's psychology? So just doing that, forget about doing any other practices, any therapy stuff. So we've got a project there. We've got some data that's come back, which is really lovely. Uh, looks pretty, quite exciting, showing that, yes, that seems to help with things like shame and increasing self-compassion and acceptance and so on. So that's exciting. We're also... Um, did a project recently that we're going to start writing up, which I guess it again goes to some of the basics of CFT, looking at voice tones. Um, so Paul's initial way into this really yeah. about how you notice some of his clients were using these different voice tones and how that could strip away the helpfulness of some of the words. And so we've actually set up an experimental study and got the data back now on doing exactly that. So could we see that even if you contain the same cognitive content in a phrase, but you read it from a different internal uh, voice tone, would that land in a different way in terms of the helpfulness? And uh, yeah, the short story is yes. Uh, We've been able to find that, which is wonderful. So I'm quite interested, Hayley, in those kind of studies of taking some of the core aspects of CFT and seeing if we can begin to look at those. I mean, I think anyone who uses CFT recognizes that they seem to be really helpful for people, but I think it's always good to get data to show that's the case. And then I guess a bunch of other sort of, you know, projects that are going on so as you say there's the app which we're excited about we're going to do more research on there's I developed during COVID a uh, the pandemic and the shutdown an online uh, four-week self-compassion course again just this idea of how can we get these ideas out there and I wanted to try to see if you already gave people 30 minutes uh, videos so four 30-minute videos would that be enough of them just watching me talk through some ideas and practice some stuff and then just have some of the audio files and reading stuff to back it up in between. And so that was really wonderful because we got some fantastic uh, um, uh, research published last year from that. But we're using this uh, online course now with uh, we're going to start a study with nurses. We're going to use this 
also with people who are experiencing uh, struggling with diabetes. So it's just trying to see if we can roll out this idea of just a very short amount of CFT ideas or CMT practice. Can yeah. this be a benefit to people? So again, this sort of way of how can we spread these ideas far and wide? And, and then I guess it comes back to thinking also outside of this rather than individuals, you know, given that we spend a lot of our times in uh, life in organizations, that's where the idea yeah. of balance came around. Can we begin to take the CFT model, the three system model, the, uh, some of the beautiful ideas within CFT and direct them into uh, and, and have a place basically where people can come along and learn about this uh, for their organizations, whatever their organization might be, whether that's for management and leadership training or whether it's in HR, how would you uh, hire people and even fire people from a, a CFT and compassion-based way? How would you organize and structure your organization in such a way that has compassion rippling through it? And, and that recognition, I guess, that your employees, your staff, they they are your god dust. They are your, you know, they are the thing that keeps things ticking. So how yeah. can we actually look at people with great care and kindness and, and compassion and how of course some wonderful studies now coming online showing that actually lo and behold uh, when people feel that their organization cares for them that they're seen yeah. that they're supported, who would guess it that they uh, like working there and yeah. not to leave tend to not be sick so much and they you know they tend to be more productive so Funny in that. some ways it's, exactly it's strange isn't it? I mean all these things it's it's in some ways it's not uh, uh, brain science but you know, it's good to be able to, I guess, create things where people can begin to find avenues, both how to do this, but also then to do research just to back it up too. Yeah. Oh, now that sounds absolutely brilliant. Well done. So if people want to find out more about you, get in touch, where can they engage with you and your work? And I'll put if you, I'll put links in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, so people can um, drop me an email. It's chris at balanceminds.com. Um, so as you say, it'll be in the show notes and people can see that. Uh, certainly our website, Balanced Minds. So it's simply www.balanceminds.com. And, um, and then I don't do much so much at the moment on social media, on Twitter and, and Facebook, which in some ways is a good thing, but I given my intention is to try to spread some of these ideas uh, a little bit further and wider, uh, I will be uh, moving a little bit more into doing some of that stuff. So people will be able to find me there too. But uh, I'm very happy for people just to drop me an email. I'm very happy just to have chats with people about this because uh, as I know you feel as well, Hayley, uh, this thing, compassion and CFT, you know, such a wonderful thing that Paul's provided to the world. And I know both of us are very passionate about this and, and just yeah. also, in a way, being able to spread the message. Um, you know, as I said earlier, you know, I, I, in some ways, was brainwashed by Paul when I was, you know, 19 year old, and, and maybe I'm happy to brainwash other people yeah. in compassion uh, going forward. And maybe this is what us we're doing in part today, spending our time just chatting about compassion and yeah. hanging out and spending time. Yeah, I don't think a goal. I don't think a goal to brainwash the world with compassion is a bad goal. <laughs> Exactly. oh it's been exactly. an absolute pleasure chris i'm so thrilled that you, you've come on um, to chat with me it's really lovely to see you and i'm really excited to see you in edinburgh later this year oh, you, wonderful i can't wait to uh, sit down and see you see you face to face and catch up and thank you so much for having me um on the podcast as well i really loved uh, being here today but also just um for people if they haven't listened to previous episodes you know i really enjoy listening to them and it's been great 
listening to people that I know who are mates of mine, but also people that I, I didn't know before. So I think you're doing a fantastic job, Hayley. So well done. Oh, thank you. Lovely to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself, and may you go well and go gently. Bye.